Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Axiom Space is poised to make history when the AX-1 crew embarks on a 10-day journey, the first ever all-private mission to the International Space Station. But CEO Mike Suffredini says don't call the startup a space tourism company. We really are a space station company. And while tourism is one of the things that, that can occur, it's not the main driver for us. We're really pioneering low Earth orbit. Axiom is conducting these private human space flights with help from SpaceX and NASA to better inform the development of commercial space stations. And the conversation couldn't have come at a more significant time, as the war in Ukraine has focused attention on American efforts to move beyond the ISS and its longstanding partnership between the U.S. and Russia. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. The AX-1 mission is set to lift off atop a Falcon 9 rocket from Florida's Kennedy Space Center with former NASA astronaut turned Axiom employee Michael Lopez Alegria as commander, Larry Connor as the pilot, and mission specialists Mark Pathy and Aitan Stiba. The latter three reportedly paid $55 million apiece for their seats on board the SpaceX Dragon capsule that will travel to the orbiting lab and back. I spoke with co-founder and CEO Mike Suffredini, who is also the former program manager for the ISS, about the upcoming mission amid the current geopolitical environment here on Earth and how it all fits into a longer-term vision for a space odyssey-inspired city in orbit. Dr. Cam Gaffari and I actually started the company back in 2016. He was he owned a company called SGT, which at, at the time that he sold it was the second largest engineering services provider to NASA, but perhaps most importantly to us, the company did the real-time operations of the contract that supported NASA for real-time operations of the International Space Station, also trained uh, its crew. So together we had quite a lot of experience in, in this, this realm. But when I first started thinking about how we would build our space station, I was really thinking about these flights as something that would occur when we, after we launched our first uh, module, which is today is in late 2024. And it wasn't until we started talking to NASA, this is about the 2017 timeframe, we were putting together uh, something called a Space Act Agreement that uh, my NASA friends in particular said, wow, you, you're building a space station that's going to handle house eight people. Um, that's more than we house on, on our full day. And maybe we should practice that a little bit. So these missions actually born out of that well before anybody said, hey, can we, can we make any revenue early on? Um, and so that was really the genesis of these missions. And they really are that way for us as a company. They're opportunities for us to, to start fulfilling, uh, handling some of the demand that's out there today, the latent demand that's out there just because of limitations on the ISS today. Um, and so that's a good thing, but perhaps more importantly, it gives a chance for NASA and us to work together 
uh, leading up to when we launch our first module and modules over time. And so really this is a, this is a great step towards, towards how we are gonna be able to operate with NASA attached and then ultimately when ISS retired, when we separate. Yeah, and I wanna get into all of that and how this speaks to the long-term business model and vision you have for Axiom Space. First, just a little bit more on the mission itself, uh, since it is just right around the corner. How did this actual crew come, come into being? Well, over time, as we were talking about to different customers about the opportunity to fly, really, um, Larry uh, was the very first um, uh, to, to come forward and say he would like to fly. Larry uh, has a tremendous pedigree. He's, a, he's the kind of uh, astronaut you look for. It's an individual that's driven, just, just in crazy driven. And he's a race car driver, so he understands risk. He understands the significance of training and all these aspects. And so for us, he was really a great first crew member to, to choose. Then over time, um, Aton, we, we were introduced to Aton, and uh, he was very interested. Israel, of course, had a, a sad moment uh, back in 2003 with the loss of their professional astronomical shuttle mission. And so Aton represented a great opportunity to bring Israel back into the human spaceflight sphere. And, and uh, that was very significant to us and significant to Aton. And that really drove the push to try to get on the first flight. And Mark Pathy is kind of similar. Um, Canada is part of the International Space Station program, but they're also, uh, the, but they're kind of a smaller part. And this is the chance for, for Mark uh, to really bring the country and himself uh, into the uh, into the limelight, if you will, of this historic mission. And so those those three guys, that's kind of how we brought them on. Mike and L.A. and I have known each other since, well, he was commander on ISS when I was the ISS program manager. We've been, we've worked together for years. And uh, when when I started Axiom Space, he came on early on uh, to support. And so from the very beginning, you know, Mike had lined up to, to be the commander on the first flight. So that's kind of how they all came together. We couldn't be more thrilled, though, with the combination. It's an international a group of, of, uh, of uh, astronauts. Uh, we, that's really a big drive for us is to be a, a, a U.S. company that supports global uh, customer base. That's very important. Uh, and, of course, to have them each really focusing on on real research, meaningful research and, and outreach to us, you just couldn't ask for a better combination for your first flight. So they've been doing a lot of training because they are, as you mentioned, gonna be so busy on this 10 day uh, space flight. So what has that training involved? And I guess, what are the expectations from your standpoint about the data that this flight, the space flight is gonna reveal? Yeah, for train, you know, when, when you talk to professional astronauts, um, they're kind of used to years and years of training. Private astronauts would like to fly. They want to be, they want to have a meaningful flight, but they also want to limit the amount of training necessary in order to, because they have other things uh, that they need to do. And so that was a big challenge for us early on because we were pretty motivated that even our private astronauts had to be well-trained so that we weren't a burden on the ISS. Crew. Now we partially solved the burden issue by flying a professional astronaut, uh, so so they'll always have somebody to go to that's not one of uh, NASA or the ISS partner crew members when they have questions. 
Uh, but also we, it was about the training. So first let's take Larry. Larry wanted to be the pilot on this flight. Uh, pilot means you get additional training, you help the commander, particularly if things are uh, not working quite right. Uh, the, the pilot's there to help uh, between the two of them uh, guide the spaceship, particularly in for, uh, for docking if things don't work quite right. So we don't expect that, but that's, that's what you have to practice for. So uh, Michael and, and Larry have gotten quite a bit of uh, training at SpaceX for the operation of that vehicle. Uh, and, uh, and both Aton and Mark are what we call mission specialists. So they've also been training, but they have slightly uh, less training requirements because uh, they have to be able to understand how to operate an emergency, but not really control the spacecraft. And then for ISS, they all have about the same training for ISS. It's about training for the systems you'll interact with. So uh, the galley, uh, the potty, the, the experiment equipment, uh, the emergency systems, uh, what to do in the event of emergency. And so they have uh, quite a few uh, hours of training on the ISS systems as well. So they're able to do that. And then finally, when it gets to their specific uh, research, and ATON has a, has a very long list, there's about 25 experiments that are going to happen over the course. And, and, wow. and ATON by far is I got the lion's share of that, and he's gonna, he has to train on his very specific experiments as well. Not just the systems he's gonna use on ISS, but the actual training for that experiment, which is actually independent, really kind of independent of ISS is what the research wants to do. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. So you have this um, contract with NASA. I think you're the only commercial <laughs> company to have such a contract as this with NASA, where the ISS and, the, and these private missions are concerned. You're also working with SpaceX, which is providing the rocket and the Dragon capsule to make all of this possible. What, is, what has it been like to work with that company? Well, SpaceX is a, is a dream. Uh, I've known these folks since the beginning. Um, I was uh, the ISS program manager when we started the commercial cargo uh, program, which was the predecessor to the commercial crew program. Um, and so uh, I had worked closely with, with Gwen and uh, Elon as we kind of figured out how to define the requirements and not be too um, overly prescriptive, which was a big challenge for NASA um, at that time. Uh, and so I've worked with them for years. I have the utmost respect for them. They built a tremendous team, very professional. They're also very driven. I think we're, you'd say NASA flights are very focused on, on safety and um, and not so much schedule. Um, SpaceX is uh, very safety driven, uh, but they, they do everything that it takes to fly on schedule as well and uh, without compromising safety. And you can see um, we had a pretty tight schedule coming in uh, for, the, for the March 31st launch when we ran into, I'm sorry, March 30th launch, when we ran into a little bit of a processing hiccup, we just all decided, yeah, we're going to push four days and get it done. But we only pushed four days, which was remarkable given the, the extra work that was being done. So it's it's just been a, a treat to work with them. We've been, you know, very uh, blessed to have them as a partner to us for this first flight. Oh, it's fascinating. It's almost like it's almost like it's come full circle for you. Yeah, for me, uh, where that company is concerned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Um, so $55 million is what's been reported in terms of the price tag per seat mm -hmm. for this mission. Um, are the astronauts paying for that themselves? Uh, 
yeah, each one of the private astronauts paid their own way. Uh, Mike L.A. is a member of the company. And so as such, we are we cover the mm-hmm. expense of his bill. Yeah, which I think is why and I realize it's a misnomer, which is why I want to get into the into the bigger vision for Axiom Space and how this fits into that. Um, this idea of, oh, space tourism, we've entered this age of, you know, new private human space flight. It's uh, it's joy rides by billionaires, et cetera which I suspect you probably bristle <laughs> at that, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> at that, um, at that labeling. So I, I guess, um, speak to me about how this does fit into the longer term vision around space habitats for Axiom. Right. There, there's a number of aspects of this. It's a, it's a topic that we hear a lot. First of all, we're not a space tourism company. We really are a space station company. And while tourism is one of the things that, that can occur, uh, it's it's not the main driver for us. We really are about, um, we're really pioneering low earth orbit. For us, it's all about uh, humanity benefiting from the microgravity environment of low earth orbit and also learning to live off the planet. We think that's important for sustaining the species. And so these are big things that drive us as a company. If you look at our long-term plan, it starts with this small space, multi-purpose space station. It evolves to a larger space station. We finally separate from ISS when it's retired, take all that's already happening on ISS, move it over so it can just keep growing. And we just grow the economy from there. And in fact, in the second half of the century, uh, we we expect to have a, uh, a city, really what we call city and space rotating station. So if you look at the way we're positioning ourselves, we really, it's all about being this this provider of this access to low earth orbit, a place to really benefit from microgravity um, and also learn how to live off the planet. So when you think about that way, you go, wow, well, tourism space doesn't seem like much. It's it's just a piece of many uh, customer bases. And I would tell you that these three gentlemen that fly on this first flight, I wouldn't classify them as tourists. They're actually very, they have quite a bit of significant things going on research wise. I do hope they find moments to to look outside and enjoy the Earth view from the cupola and other areas. I'm being facetious. I know they will. Um, <laughs> but when people ask me about that, I kind of remind them a little bit about uh, air travel and train travel. These kinds of things always started off being extremely expensive. Only the well-to-do could afford them. Um, and, and that's certainly going to be true in space for a while. However, I'll tell you this, every astronaut, so I was ISIS program manager, well, I've been in human space like my entire career, which I'm sad to say is pushing 40 years. And um, in that time, I did a lot in human space flight. But my last 10 years at NASA before I retired in 2015, I was the ISIS program manager. So every crew before they flew to space visited with me and every crew when they returned home visited with me. And I didn't find anyone uh, who wasn't extremely moved by the experience where they they come home i'll say spiritual i don't want to turn anybody off that term but really it's almost a spiritual thing where you know you get in orbit you know that you see this beautiful blue ball there's no borders there's no dogma there's just this beautiful planet and you realize how fragile it is you can tell this just little thin atmosphere that you can see that's protecting the planet and you come home moved with this idea that we have to learn how to how to live together on this planet, take care of it and take care of each other. And, um, you know, when you think about it, people with the means to, to afford a ticket are the kind of people who own companies and philanthropic 
efforts and, and uh, just on a moment's notice can start a company up to do whatever it is they want to go uh, pursue. And, and I really believe that, that these kinds of people that fly to space will come back and be able to make the biggest difference on our planet as a result of, of the experience. So I have really a kind of a different thought to that whole thing. And it might be because I'm very close to it. It might be because I've, you just can't imagine how people try to describe this experience in space and how they feel when they get home. Uh, but it's clearly very moving. Hmm. What does an orbiting city from an Axiom standpoint look like? Oh, I'd love to send you a picture or two, but it's, <laughs> it's actually, it's, so imagine 2001 A Space Odyssey, so it rotated. And the rotation's important because the rotation gives you gravity. So you can spend, depending on how big it is, this one's fairly large, it spends about two revs um, per minute. So it's, uh, it's not going that fast, um, but it's enough to give you about an eighth, I mean, eight-tenths of, of a G, which is, is plenty. And so now in this rotate, large rotating section, you can have uh, stores, schools. You can do it a lot like a city because you can, some, some entity can procure or lease the location, build a hotel, build a studio, build a anything. So you can have schools and all this in this rotating area. That's important because instead of coming to orbit for a few days or half a year and being away from your family, now it's more like when you go somewhere to work for a few years, you go to a different city. So you create this environment where people don't have to go find special exercise equipment. You give them kind of gravity. And then what's different than 2001 A Space Odyssey, this is way more than you want to hear, but What's different than 2001 in Space Odyssey is the center section does not rotate. It cannot rotate or you screw up the microgravity environment, which is why you're there. And, and so if you look at images of it, it's a big rotating station, but the center is still and it has a number of very large uh, modules for, for doing different types of manufacturing and research and uh, things like that. So walk me through the steps of how Axiom is able to, as a commercial company, get to that point and realize that vision. I mean, you know, you're developing this module by 2024 for the International Space Station. Then you move toward, I would imagine, free-floating commercial uh, space habitats, and then you continue to build from there? Right. So this, the first module that you hear about is just the first step in the assembly of our space station. So we have the rights to attach the International Space Station. We actually will attach several modules. We'll assemble our station attached to the ISS. Not too dissimilar from ISS, not near as many assembly steps, but not too dissimilar from ISS. So our first module attached to what you think of as the front, and uh, we bring a, a, a docking port with us. So we, we ease the that constraint, docking ports and and life supported the two real limitations for the people being on ISS. The next module after that's about six or eight months later, it's identical to the first one for all intents and purposes. So now we have two docking ports and eight, uh, we can support uh, eight people. Um, then we add a research module after that. Then we stay like that in that config, roughly speaking, until actually, no, it's not true. We add another entertainment inflatable module that we build for a customer. And then we stay roughly in that config unless somebody else can ask for something different uh, until it's about a year away from ISS 
uh, retiring. So right now they're talking about 2030, anywhere from 2028 to 2030. About a year before that, we'll bring up our big power and cooling module. We wait until then because it's very big, like the ISS of solar rays. And so it there's going to be shadowing issues. And, and, and so we don't want to really deal with that. We don't want our ISS friends either to deal with that until closer to the end. But we need about a year to ring it all out. So during that last year, we ring it out. Uh, the, the power and cooling module, we move everything over from ISS that wants to stay on orbit. We help configure ISS for departure. Then we separate from the International Space Station and that space station that we've been building attached to ISS continues to fly free floating and ISS is deorbiting. Hmm. So that's that's how that's how we get to about 2030. And all that while, yes, we're building a station, perhaps more importantly, we're working on helping build uh, the businesses that will utilize it because that's a big part of this process is helping companies understand and countries understand the value of the microgravity environment and then help them start doing uh, research leading to manufacturing and other things on orbit. Uh, that's a big part of what we do as well is help grow uh, the economy. So in 2030, ISS retires. We are now flying standalone. At that point, we will evolve. We can get as large as we need to. But at some point, the multi-purpose nature of our platform because the way it's built is kind of difficult. So if there's a big manufacturer, he probably wants his own space station. So we would we would we will build standalone space stations. Okay. Um, and and then the whole thing kind of grows from there. Eventually, it just it, it gets so big that you want to kind of create a city and put everybody kind of together. Understood. And of course, it, so it sounds expensive. So when you lay it out like that, that essentially the business model that you're working with companies and you're working with countries, and that is sort of where the revenue to be able to fund all of this and, and make it sustainable, I would imagine, comes from. That's correct. So we have investors early on, about half of the CapEx for the initial vehicle comes from investment, the rest comes from revenue. And after that, we suspect it to be revenue sustaining. So we're having this entire conversation with quite an interesting geopolitical backdrop right now. I mean, you have the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. It has raised questions, although the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, has said, no, everything's still on track. This civil space partnership continues to exist and operate as normal. But it has potentially raised some questions about the longer term future through the rest of this decade around the ISS and what that partnership uh, looks like and how that evolves. How are you navigating that, both in the near term, where this AX-1 mission is concerned, and I guess in the longer term, in case you were to see something like the ISS um, retired sooner than 2030? That's a, that's a loaded question. Um, well, first of all, we this has been what, what we that are kind of been doing this with ISS for the last several years sort of recognized is that... Um, when you have together, you support humans in space together, you tend to have a pretty tight bond. So we have this international crew on orbit. It takes all sides to keep the crew safe and, and productive on orbit. And over the years, we've had, we've had challenges before. Um, nothing, of course, is as significant as what's going on right now, but still challenges. And through all that, through all the sanctions and all the challenges, the, the ISS program has always been set aside by by the US and Russia and the partnership and said, nope, this is what we do together and we're going to continue to do that because it's important. And I, I firmly believe that's, that is the secret to 
humanity's success in the future. We have to we have to pick these kinds of things where we say no matter what we're gonna we're gonna stay together and and uh, and it makes it although it's very hard in the difficult times it gets harder if you just take your toys and go home and uh, and so right now I'm very proud that that as as a couple of countries that have been in this ISS program since '93 they're really still holding it together. For us, of course, we we kind of represent an opportunity for the U.S. to be a little more independent of, of the Russian segment. Not that that's something we have to do, but once we show up, we can uh, provide propulsive attitude control and translation, which is what the Russian segment can do for the for the stack that uh, the U.S. segment cannot do. So we do bring that capability. Hmm. Um, and like I said, we're about to we're 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 September 24 is our first flight. So fairly early on, we'll be able to provide that. Um, ultimately, of course, if ISS was retired, which is it's really not in the cards, very difficult to do to start with, uh, uh, we would fly by ourselves, but that's not what we want to do. We want to help pull the partnership together and, and be there for a, uh, let's call it normal retirement. Understood. And of course, uh, I think if there's one person who can speak to this with more clarity, given the fact that you've been on both sides, public, private sector, it's probably yourself. Um, how, how would you assess the competitive landscape? Because we have seen NASA uh, start to dole out a little bit of funding to some other commercial space station prototypes. Do you see those as competitors or potential rivals? Well, they're competitors, but you know the the existence of competitors means there's a market. So we love that part of it. Um, so, so what is significant about the contract we ultimately signed with NASA, and, and we kind of worked with NASA to, on, on how we would, not how we would contract it, but when they asked our opinion through an RFI process, we, we told them we thought it was critically important that NASA not pay for development, which is different than commercial crew and commercial cargo. We said it was very important because we, if the space station companies build a space station with NASA money, NASA will not be enough of a customer to keep it in orbit. Yeah. And so this is unlike commercial crew and commercial cargo where NASA alone can provide enough business for two companies. They really can't do that in the space station realm. And so we've been, we, we were first to push that NASA should spend some money and, and give some money for something, but it shouldn't be development. They don't on our contract. We have a contract with NASA where we provide insight and demonstrations based on what NASA asks for. And that's what they pay for. They don't pay anything for development, operations, launch, all that's covered by us. And they and if they do the same thing for the for the free what are called free flyers, now none of those actually get to come to ISS first. They launch later. They're probably most of them uh, will come late, maybe about the time ISS retires. Um, but they will be the same thing. So if these companies, if us and these companies are successful, it means that we've uh, successfully grown uh, the economy to the point where it becomes uh, self-sustaining and that, you know, that's worth it to, to all of us. So now we look forward to it. We've, they've been talking, NASA's been talking about this from the very beginning, that there would be a free flyer group. We are the only ones that get to attach the International Space Station, which we believe gives us some advantages uh, as well. Do you have ambitions beyond low Earth orbit longer term? Um, you know, what we do is very, um, it, it, it uh, translates well to lunar and uh, Mars missions. Um, 
we we do have some ideas about uh, how to how to get to Mars and back and the right way to do that. But you know, as a company, for what we're off to go do right now, we have to be laser focused on on getting these uh, first few modules. Well, the whole station built uh, on the schedule that we said we'd do it on, and that's critically important to us. So right now, we're we're focused on that. Okay, and so just to bring it back to this upcoming mission, you have AX one, and then you have it's two more missions behind that. How many well, total? Remember, remember, this is the first flight of forever for us as a company. <laughs> we just keep, we keep flying. So, uh, but AX two has been approved by NASA, but we've we've secured the first four commercial missions for okay. SpaceX from SpaceX. So, if you want to look at it that way, we've for the first four missions we've already accommodated, and we've pretty much filled. We're pretty close to filling all four. So, will you be on board one of these missions? Uh, I cannot afford it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, well, I shouldn't say that. Someday, when I can, I will go. That's not the right way. I all right. Well, if you need a journalist in that process at some point in the future, especially as the price drops, you just let me know. You're, you're in. Uh, <laughs> Mike Sufferdini, thank you so much for taking the time. Good luck and Godspeed with this upcoming mission. And uh, we look forward to seeing how all of this progresses and unfolds, not only over the coming days and coming weeks, but coming years as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Take care. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Maureen Brennan. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.